Live from beautiful Birmingham, England, it's No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by Courtney Nguyen. Hello, Courtney. How Hello, are you? Hello, Ben. I'm doing well. We're in Birmingham. We are. We Brummy. Are... Brumtown. B-Town. I, I keep trying to call it the Big Ham. They don't like seem the to Big en- Ham. They don't seem to appreciate that because they're really into not pronouncing so many of the letters. Um. In, cause <laughs> in, in classic British form, the city is Birmingham, is how it's spelled, and how we call the one in Alabama. Right. And, which is native for this place. And they call it brum. <laughs> they just well, like basically on. take the first I, couple consonants and just kind of brum. True. I mean, yes, we have Birmingham, Alabama. Obviously, here it's Birmingham. Mm-hmm. It's not Birmingham. Take out the H and the A. Yep. So Birmingham. And yeah, brum, brummy. That's we, all we, I we both just got. We both just got. We don't have, we don't have big takes. On <laughs> I don't our, have big stories. We don't have big stories in this place yet. Um, we are mostly going to be looking back at the French Open. We did not get to do a show on the last night. For happy reasons, Very good actually. Reasons. Let's start with that, actually. Let's start okay. with the ending, because the ending was the best part of the tournament. One of the most fun evenings I had at a slam ever. I tweeted a bunch during it. There are photos. Renee Denfeld obviously tweeted a lot about it, too. And I wrote a story for the Times about it. I actually wrote that night after we got back from kebabing. Impressive. Um, I know, right? I was, I was, which was good, though, because it was still, like, very fresh. And didn't come out until, like, four or five days later. But, anyway... They had a demolition party at Roland Garros. They are saying goodbye to the old Philippe Chatrier Media Center, which is the only one we've known. I guess you might maybe you got relegated to Long London. I've never, I've point. actually no, I've never been in the okay. Suzanne Long London. There's a now it's just a press center in both. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but yeah, no, it was a destruction of the media center under Philippe Chatrier. And why don't you explain um, what was going on? Just the, the premise of the party. Ooh, well, I. D- it was funny because I had been commentating the men's final, the second two, the the second and third sets, um, won by Rafael Nadal. Spoiler alert! And um, uh, so, I, and the radio room is separate from the media center. So I I finish calling, do the tro- the ceremony, recap the tournament, et cetera, et cetera. Walking back into the media center, and literally I walked in, and the first thought that came to mind as I saw what was going on was that ESPN commercial, the Y two K commercial with Mark McGuire running through like the ESPN offices like with a baseball bat and Charlie Steiner with war paint and the uh, the tie around his forehead and he says follow me follow me to freedom it was just chaos <laughs> i walked in and um uh the the FFT had had given people paint markers uh-huh and i walk in and there are literally people hanging from the railings being boosted up by people just scrawling on the walls People walking around with hard hats, and Howard, our good friend Howard uh, Feindrich, uh, uh, AP wire reporter extraordinaire, mm-hmm. uh, he walked in so proudly with his his uh, his uh, uh, hard hat, and he was like, "Best tournament swag ever." I actually didn't get. Did you get a hat? I, I got a hat and I forgot it. I didn't sight. get. My head is too big for hats. It is a large head. It's just a big old head. Yeah. I, I knew it was going to end well, so I just avoided the hat. No, there's uh, lots of photos of me wearing my hat, my my white hard hat, like gangster style, like backwards. That's not really gangster style. Andy Roddick style. Um, like catcher style? Yeah, maybe? catcher style. Yeah, okay. Um, I had fun with it. Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. There was just like, the vibe was very cool, and it was just like, it was this sort of... It was know, last letting, day letting at school. Your, right, it was, like, it was like last day at school, like old school, but we don't usually get that no. on site at slams. In some ways, like, the beginning of slams are almost where we have more of our sort of, like, first day of camp type. But we're like, what have you been up to? Right, especially, How's like, especially at the 
Australian. Uh, Australian Open. We haven't seen people in a while. Yeah. And maybe even French, because you haven't always seen people yeah. in between if they don't go to Indian Wells or Rome. But anyway, it was all very fun. We wrote lots of stuff on the walls. And it's, I presume that building's already gone. Yeah, they, they were... Us, yeah, they were... They were Ready. speed running. One of the media workstations next to mine, they were like, had a drill. During the uh, Muguruza Howlett match, they had a guy like Doing take, dry taking runs. it apart, like taking part of the outlet. And I was like, this is like, there's like a grand semifinal happening here, guys. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm, I can only look at you because I'm curious to see how fast you can do it. It was like, it, anyway. Uh, no, it was great yeah. and it was like super cathartic. And what was so nice about it and why I did tweet, it was like the most fun I've, ever, I've had on any singular day at any slam that I've covered was just that there was this incredible camaraderie yeah. uh, that doesn't always exist. Not because there, we aren't, we, there isn't that vibe. There is that vibe, but just journalists being able to run around this room and laugh and not take, I don't know, kind of just do well, because... well, you and I put it this way, you, myself, Renee, Reem, Carol, like the, the people that we hang out with the most, Yeah, we are, inclined to laugh and not take everything too seriously with respect to you know oh this person said you know this player said this what a crazy quote like we that's what the kebabery is about we sit down we debrief the day and we laugh about it i don't have those moments necessarily with everybody else in that room and sometimes i get the sense that they don't want to have those moments it's a very serious job and Mm -hmm. we're all on deadline and everybody be quiet and you know like all that sort of stuff so this was a moment where, for those who stuck around, I mean, they basically gave us a run of, like, we drank all the beer from the press bar <laughs> until the taps were dry. They just kept wheeling out, like, whatever alcohol was on site, they, like, brought it to the press center. So there was all that food as well. The staff that had been serving us, like, in the press bar were also, like, see, having a see blast. the staff that engaged was, like, it was sort of, like... Not the inmates running the asylum, but like whatever, like seeing like the wardens like break down yeah. the jail cells, and like they were the most excited to deface all of it for yeah. anybody. And that, which that was just what sort of cool. I mean, like to your previous point about people being not fun oriented or whatever, it was. Um, it's a weird environment. Our workplace is a very strange, unique work environment. We are, in theory, competitors who share offices, and those offices change like every two weeks. Yeah, like there's no sense of permanent place there. <laughs> I, we all work for different bosses, different time zones, right. so there is no cohesion, right? And there's like, nothing like there's nothing you do that feels like kind of lasting, yeah. in a way too, which is was sort of way I went with my piece in the end, was sort of like getting to write on the wall of like, hey, like I and I've never been a graffiti person ever, but now clearly this started an addiction for me. <laughs> um, sorry, this and IKEA furniture, Ben's <laughs> too new hobbies. They have the weirdest vices. Um, <laughs> just gonna be defacing IKEA. Ooh, I see it now. Oh. Um, yeah, seeing, getting to do that and getting to sort of have some sort of tactile fun experience at this place, which normally we had to pack up and leave and sort of be traceless at. Then yeah. it, was, it was sort of cool to give the, the place much more of a, a feeling. Because, like, it's not like a normal desk job even where you get to, like, pin a photo to right. your cubicle. Granted, you have, you've had a photo at your U.S. Open desk before. <laughs> that you pinned. That I pinned there. Um, and I know which one I'm going to do this year, too. And well, then we're very excited. We'll tweet it. Anyhow, all that is to say, it was a fun tournament, and it really wrapped up. It was a really, I think part of the reason everyone was so excited for it is that we had nothing else happen that day, because the men's final was boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> I was going to say crap, but it wasn't complete crap. I mean, Rafa played fine, Dominic, which is nowhere near as good as him, and it wasn't interesting. That I know. It was intrigue. Let's, let's start, let's, I mean, let's start with Rafa. 
we're gonna start with the men because there's less to say about the men. And I was joking earlier before we started it. If we don't talk about the men first, we're not gonna talk about them at all. Um, I don't know if I'm as down on things as Ben is, but, let, but let's see well, how I'm, this plays out. I'm just out. like in terms of like a week later impressions. That's where I'm like, if it had been like the if we'd done this show a week ago that night, I would have more fresh thoughts about the men's tournament. Fair. Okay. A week later, what has lasted for me? Okay, let's start with Rafa. Rafa's obviously amazing winning 11 times, continuing to be this inevitable feeling of a champion, it's not easy. Like, we people, I, we say this all the time about Serena. Mm-hmm, like, it's, un, exactly. it's unfair to presume they're going to do it, and you, you're, you're disrespecting her and disrespecting the field by making it like, oh, she's going to come back and win easy, or, oh, of course she's going to win Wimbledon when she's number one, or of course she'll win the U.S. Open after she's won the first three slams of the year. Like, she's the greatest of all time, whatever. And with Rafa, you have to constantly remember to do that yourself, too. Although with Rafa... It's different than Serena because Serena kind of gets that everywhere. Rafa gets it really in that form only at the French. And things do seem to be so set up for him there in terms of the conditions, in terms of who hasn't been there lately. I mean, we haven't, I don't know if we said this explicitly, but Rafa is the number one beneficiary of the Djokovic slump for sure. Djokovic was the guy standing in his way. He was the one who actually beat him at the French Open once and it didn't feel like an upset back in 2015 uh, when he beat him in the quarterfinal there. Anyway, I'm not saying that Rafa doesn't deserve it. Rafa is so much better than everybody else and completely yeah. deserves it. But it's it's hard. It's Rafa's dominance, I feel like, will be a very cool thing to, like, tell your grandkids or whatever. Like, yeah, like, I was there when Rafa was doing this and it was amazing. Living it is not always as okay. fascinating. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, what you just said is, to me, not something that I would ascribe specifically to Rafa. I just think that's the definition of dominance. Like, that's why I am anti-dominance and always have been because it's, again, it's so cool intellectually. And if you, obviously, if you like the player, like if you yeah. love watching Rafa Nadal like hit loves, tennis balls. You love Steffi. I love Steffi. And exactly. Steffi was equally dominant. Exactly. For, for um, and that's probably the last dominant athlete, honestly, that I was like in the bag for, you know? Um, but... You know, like I have friends, obviously, who are Federer fans. They just love watching the guy do his thing. If it's six love, six love, and I interrogate these people, like, really? That's that's entertaining to you? Yes, it is unbelievably no. entertaining to me. That, I get, 100%. I get that. I yeah, get that. I, I, I'm only carving that out separately just to set that aside. Yeah. But setting that aside, yeah, what you're saying about kind of like it's kind of less dramatic when you live it because it is you know, dominance, dominance. Um, I think that that, that, that is true. And, and that applies to anyone who has been dominant, like through any stretch of time. And, you know, obviously the shorter amount of time, like when Novak had his insane year and when he had his like winning streak, Vika, when she had that crazy streak where you and I were just like, how do you beat her when she's playing yeah, like this? Yeah. 2012, yeah. Um, when it's a shorter amount of time, obviously there's more dramatic tension because you don't know if it's going to end, and so you're waiting for Especially it. Especially when know. it's like an undefeated streak. Like exactly. You know it's, a it match. has to, yeah. right? You, yeah. you know that it, by definition. Which is why certain people got excited about Rafa's set streak that happened earlier this week. Right. That was Something more, to... Because that was... That was stakes. like that was stakes every match. Like he got stakes. to five all every or, set. Like Cleason had set points, I think, against him in Barcelona. It was like, oh my gosh, here comes a possible set drop, and we're just kind of inventing reasons to be interested. Oh, Diego Schwartzman, and then he won one set, and I was like, oh, <laughs> here he comes. Um, but uh, thank you, Serena. Yeah, thank you, Serena. Um, yeah, so so I think that that's just I don't know. I I I would be hesitant to ascribe that description like your description just to rafa i just think it's a dominant i think thing. i think rafa at the french open is the most extreme example of it we have in modern tennis 
I think it's your general point stands, but yeah, I think I think Rafa true. at the French is the most. I buy that. It's the most dominant, and it's it's tough. And there's plenty of other people. Serena's the most obvious person. Federer was like twelve years twelve years ago. It's so old this man. <laughs> um, no, but it's true. Dad. Like, but like back in like oh four oh four oh five oh six. Like that's when Federer was at this more level. And since then, it's been more interesting at tournaments. Well, not, I mean, interesting might be a stretch in your opinion. He hasn't been winning all the time. And Djokovic had moments of being a lock in 2015 and 2011. Um, Murray didn't really have that ever, but he had moments of being yeah. really strong. I guess that one fall where he got the number one, he was winning everything. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I think that I will say that if I think about it, I think it's a little bit different what Rafa does at the French Open compared to what Roger has done in the past or even Novak. And it's cute that you throw Andy in there, but I'm not dealing with Andy in that one. Um, but specifically those two, because for, I mean, obviously Novak was for a very long time, you know, the 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 number two slash number one. Like yeah. He was the one that was battling Rafa on clay. But I think feel like, especially if you compare Rafa, Rafa, Rafa and Roger, like because Roger tends to do it on obviously quick surfaces, yeah. like grass and also hard court, there's still a little bit more vari- variable. There, there are more variables where things can go wrong, yeah, and I feel exactly. like with Rafa, as particularly at Roland Garros, like Masters tournament separate, Madrid separate, whatever, but particularly at Roland Garros, best of five, in that format, there's just you just it just doesn't seem. And I commentated a lot of his matches, like for for Radio RG. There just doesn't seem like much can go wrong like and so therefore there is a little bit more of a sense of inevitability with respect to rafa at roland garros than of federer at wimbledon yeah, or federer on a fast court federer, federer wimbledon had i don't remember all of them but he had one where he like lost to songa and five i believe where songa can you know get hot and win a tie break or that's something thing, and, and break that's and whatever, what i mean right yeah. birdage shit that two against him in 2010 like and those were decent federer years if i'm remembering vaguely correctly whenever they were yeah, with Rafa, yeah. the margins are so huge. And Diego Schwartzman, who you mentioned, who played him in the quarters, was the only guy who got a set off Rafa and was actually upset in a break and was playing pretty well. And then the rains came and interrupted. That that match was starting to trend towards, uh-oh. But again, this is part of my best five complaint, but which I won't get into too much. But just the finish line is so far away. It gives it makes the, the match more of a guaranteed thing for an all. And if you think that sports should be a meritocracy and the better player should be given as much ample chance as possible to prevail because they're the better player every single time, then Rafa at best of five and Clay is perfect for you. Yeah. Because really, it's been almost flawless. And it just works for him. And yeah. his numbers, yeah, his numbers are insane. The 11, it's incredible. I don't think there's ever been a player who's had this many grand slams, which is such a high percentage in that one place. It's another interesting sort of wrinkle for the goat debate does that count for or against you can go i can go either way on that in terms of having 11 he's at 17 now well 17 because two wimbledon's three u.s opens one australia so 17 um and 11 of them the french i don't know there's there's abstract talking points but the journey watching him get there which just felt like kind of cruise control even well, even with hermanito doing his thing and being lovely hermano. but e- but even hermano didn't said afterwards he didn't really believe like he could win. Yeah. And I was trying to, and I was not trying to will him, but I was sort of like thinking like, if he, his coach goes like, you realize there was actually even before the rain really started, he was up uh, set in 3-1, I think, and played a horrible service game. And I was like, oh, you don't think you're supposed to be the one to do this. Like you have to feel because of everything Roth has done. And we, we'll get to Serena later. I forgot Serena was in this tournament. Um, 
you know, you have to feel there has this. You have to have this almost Soderling esque, you know, sense of arrogance or sense, a sense of entitlement. Why it was Soderling. Yeah, Soderling was the guy to do it because I remember. Yeah, we talked about this back early days. The show we were frustrated when it didn't seem when it seemed like guys were. There's a reason why it was Rosal also, mm-hmm. and with Nadal to use a different example, Wimbledon. Like you have to have, I and mean, even Stakowski, if you want to throw him in there, against Federer in 2013. Like you have to have this sort of incredible self-esteem, and self-image, and self-regard to think that you're worthy of doing this, to think that you're worthy of being the guy. And I don't know that the guys have this. I don't know if Dominic Team had that in the final. I don't know I, who who did he play in the semi at all. I did Poche. Del Poche was. I don't know if Del Poche thought that either, honestly. But he was also just kind of tired. And, oh, for six, yeah. six break points, Del Poche. Come on, man. <laughs> I actually didn't watch any of that match because I was out at Long Lawn watching uh, check on check on check on check. Ah, delicious. With Caitlin. Delicious. Um, yeah. I mean, you were the only point that I wanted to make. Um, is in addition to all of that, is that you were saying that like you know Rafa's the biggest beneficiary of of the Novak slump. I think that it's actually even broader than that. I think that one thing that, especially, and again, it's amplified at Roland Garros only because, and I, and I don't know, maybe I'm completely wrong on this theory, but it is, again, to bring her up again, Serena, it's the Serena theory. It's that Rafa is going to beat, I think, on any given day, each one of, any one of those 127 other players in the draw. Yeah. The, the hope for the field is that the field beats him. So with the lack of, you know, with, with Roger skipping clay, Novak slumping, even an Andy who can at least make a physical matchup with yeah. him, Stan, mm-hmm. you know, you think of all these players and they're out, the field cannot beat him. Like, you know, you, you, because you it, it's not going to be, oh, this person is going to be the one that, that, that slays Rafa or slays Serena. It's going to be can... You know, and I think I said this on the preview show, like the the issue with Serena coming back is not that she's not good enough or great enough to do it, but it's whether or not against a deep WTA field, can she beat what was going to look like a, what, Barty, Gerges, um, Sharapova, Muguruza, Halep, uh, to play, you know, whoever in the Mm -hmm. final... I that's a really really steep you know yeah. and 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 right now with the way that the ATP is that does not exist not just for Rafa but it also doesn't really exist for Roger either as we move yeah, ahead to, no, to Wimbledon and hard courts and that's the issue it's not that one of them like Novak's not around to beat them it's like no it's like there is not that top level pack even you look when you mention Sanga and Burdick those yeah. are still tough outs. You still have to, and it even takes Ferrer something. would play would yeah. would would at least make you right. annoyed out there for three hours. Right now, with the way that the ATP top ten is, you feel like that standard is 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 depressed yeah. a little bit compared you're, you're to you're just in not the, getting the bruises along the way. Exactly, so it's yeah. it's kind of death by seven cuts, and and there's there aren't enough. There the knives aren't. are not very sharp right now. <laughs> it's true. So mean. It, it's just it's true. Okay, so anyway, so let's go through a little bit more of this how we got to this men's draw. Team makes his first final. Um, this felt inevitable, I guess. I mean, he was the guy who was sort of, I think, talked about in this draw. Um, I have thoughts on Sasha's very which I will get to. Um, but he was favorite in all of his matches that he played up until the final, obviously. And he won them all relatively comfortably. I mean, he got he, he got pushed. Team is in this really interesting um, 
mode right now where he seems to, I don't think he always played. I, 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 I've watched him obviously a fair amount, but like he seems to be more ball bashy than yes. before. Just like, like foot on the accelerator 100%. completely. And it's really, as a WTA fan, I appreciate it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's BBB, brainless ball bashing. And it's interesting to see a guy do it. Um, maybe, I don't think Vavrinka even did it really when, because that's who team draws the most obvious comparisons to, uh, just in terms of game style and physicality. It was, so it was interesting to see that that redlining, essentially, gave people competitive sets because he was not, you know, really being tidy on court. He would drop sets to Sitsipas. He would play long sets with Marco Cecchinato, who we can also get into, in the semifinals. I mean, like, he was kind of keeping it fast and loose, but it was working. And, it, and it's not a, it's an interesting model to see an ATP or play because it's just not, honestly, a men's tennis style that we usually see. It's somebody... Just kind of being like, I'm just going to go swing out and hope for the best. I think that with Dominic Team, and for whatever reason, I watched probably more Dominic Team over the Fortnite than any other men yeah. because I just radio happened to shifts, be, yeah. yeah, it just happened to my radio shifts, hap- shifts happened to fall on Team, but uh, a lot. And the thing that kind of dawned on me because I had the same impression as well, where like I had, I, like there was a moment maybe middle of the first week where I was like. I feel like I've watched a lot of Dominic Team, but I haven't seen this Dominic Team like as as redliney as he was. My takeaway from that, and I don't know if the reporting matches it, it was just my gut feeling, my narrative, if you will, uh, was just that 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 he was playing to beat Rafa. That he was prepping his, he wasn't. It wasn't about winning those matches. It was about getting himself to, and drilling in, into himself to play in a style that he thought he was going to need. In order to to, to to make the final competitive, which mm-hmm. I thought the final, the first two sets were a lot more competitive than people give it credit for. The, the final set was a bit, obviously, a bit of a given. But um, the first set, yeah, he came back. It was four all, I think. In the yeah, first set he point. played. He played a bad game at the yeah. end and got broken. Um, in the second set, he played a bad game in the early in the early stages, and then Rafa just held through. Yeah, but he was getting, there wasn't a lot of scoreboard pressure. No, yeah. yeah, but but he was he was playing well, and he was, I, I I felt like he was just trying to like play the way that he thought. It was going to work, and then at the end of the day, it didn't work because yeah. Rafa's Rafa. But um, but I was impressed by team. I thought it was a good tournament from him. I think that inevitable. I don't know. I mean, I think that everybody was kind of circling this Zverev team match as being a as the winner of the uh, the victor from the bottom half would come out of that, and then people were keeping an eye on Djokovic. Yeah, exactly. uh, you know, obviously because that would have been a potential semifinal. So Chekhanato obviously crashed that party, and team. I'm um, sorry, Zverev broke himself i guess because did you know that playing back to back to back five set matches might have a toll on your body particularly when you are a young person who has not grown into your physicality yet ben so let's just get into this this kid sasha and i'm sorry they don't have the yorkshire accent to please him um i could try to pick one up over here but people were so enamored I say people, just straw man people. I don't know specific names. They. The they. The they of the tennis establishment. The they of the sort of the tennis gatekeepers or, you know, the old guard, whatever. We're so pleased with Sasha Zverev grinding out these long wins. Um, he, he'd be, he, his first match, he played Barankas, who hadn't played, I think, at all on clay. And people thought might pull out. And people thought, you know, Barankas was not much opposition. He got killed. One, one, and two. Then he goes the most and, impressive Sasha looked all tournament. And then he goes and plays Lajevic out on Bullring. And he struggles. He goes down two sets to one to Lajevic, who's playing, he played decently well. 
and Alivich completely ran out of gas in the fourth and fifth sets, and Sasha wins in five. Uh, next round plays Joomer, uh, who is the 26th seed, I think. Is that 26? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 26. Um, again, goes down two sets to one. This one's closer, close fourth and fifth sets. And actually, Sasha was up in the fifth and then slipped back and had to get it back. Um, it was Sasha's first ever top 50 win at a slam, beating Demir Joomer uh, in five sets. And then he goes, and again, he gets down two sets to one in the next round against Karen Kachanov. And he wins in five. And by this, and he's gassed. And people were like, wow, he's re- this is what you have to do to win science. Learned like, no, no. And I don't understand the bar or the curve people are using for Sasha Zverev. When we did our draw preview show, we looked at it and said, oh, there's no one here who can really beat him. Please not playing well. Vavrinko was in there. He was right. question markable. He didn't wind up winning any matches. It would have been a disaster if Zverev had not made it through the quarterfinals with this draw. And he made it as hard on himself as he possibly could be. He is a top, top player. I say I say all this because I've seen him play and win three Masters titles, and those things are hard. Yeah. Like, no one in generation... Oh, there's generation above him, uh, whatever you want to call them, has won one total. Just Dimitrov in Cincinnati last year, and that was a very weak field. <laughs> Nishikori doesn't have any. Ronich doesn't have any. Zverev has three already. Yeah. So that's a lot. And so... And he's a top five player, and I'm going to grade him like a top five player. And a top five player playing down to the level of his competition match after match and making things so hard on himself when he just came off a long, long winning streak on clay, winning Madrid, winning Munich before that, making a Rome final, being up a break in the third set against Nadal in that Rome final. I'm not going to buy you a cookie for beating Dusan Lajevic in five. I'm not going to get you a second cookie for going five against Jumer. I'm not going to buy you a whole basket of cookies for doing it a third time. And that seemed to be the cookie currency that was being passed out to this kid. I, I, and I just was not impressed because he, I've seen him win Masters titles. And the tennis is not that different that you shouldn't be able to go and beat these players. who. who this was not, again, not a tough draw, not complete game. I mean, Kachanov is, is a reasonable person, but after Barankas, nobody who he played had ever made it to the round they were playing him to play, if that makes sense. Lajevic has never made a slam third round. Right. Jumer's never made a slam fourth round. Kachanov's never made a quarter. So he's meeting everybody kind of at their natural end point and taking a long time to dismiss them. And yes, it's a good step. Hopefully maybe there's some mental baggage cleared for him. Because I want to see Sasha do better at slams. He's a great player. His game, when it's on, is incredible. It's yeah. a sort of Djokovic-type wall steadiness of the really clean forehand and backhand with a lot more power and a lot more sort of offensive upside. It's a beautiful game to watch when it's on, especially on clay, if, when he's in that right sort of frame of mind. Actually, it looks good on all surfaces. And so all that being said, when he goes... And lollygags around for three matches against subpar competition by his top elite standards, and then it's in no shape to play team whatsoever. I give him like a C plus at this tournament. Like I, honestly, I'm just not impressed by this. And I, it's, if everything is incremental, he hadn't done it before. Blah blah blah. No, like no. I mean, the thing is, and and I was, I think Simon Cambers and I were talking about this on the radio, is. With Zverev, again, yeah, the compliments and, and all the accolades that he was getting, getting those wins, and they were wins that he needed to prove that he could get. But at the end of the day, that was why Dominic Team was in the final. Yeah. Because Dominic Team managed his tournament. It's not about gauging somebody's ability to win a slam or go deep in a slam. It's not about the individual wins necessarily that they're able to to pull off Mm -hmm. it's about managing the tournament right you got to get through the first week and we saw this with murray 
on Clay and and Djokovic as as they matured over over time, and we've seen it with respect to to Rafa, where sometimes maybe there's some some softness in the first week and things. And like Australia this year, he took a lot of lumps along the way, exactly. which led to his possibly led to his retirement. Again, it's death by seven cuts. Yeah. It's not about oh, I think that Demir Jumer is going to beat Sasha Zverev. It's that I still, if he's going to get himself into this trouble, then I th- I just bet the field against him. Yeah. And I think that that's something that Dominic Team I thought, better than at any other slam, obviously, that he's competed at because it was his first final. But I was personally incredibly impressed by him because it was very businesslike what he was trying to do out there. And it was just get on the court, get the win, put me on any court, I don't care, let's go. And he, by the time that the tournament, you know, rounded the corner and moved into the second week, it was like, oh, Dominic team's got a full tank of gas. And then the way that he was able to obviously get the win over Zverev, who was who had hurt his leg, and then take care of Chekanato, and then, you know, going into the final, it was actually quite nice because you felt like, okay, Rafa and team are full tanks of gas going to go up against each other in the final. And that's a huge credit to Dominic team of being able to do something he'd never done before, which was just not overplay like and, weirdly and the thing and the thing is all that is credit to dominic team to use your analogy he's got a big old tank on him like seriously he played he's me, a he, he, he won nice I mean, the week before yeah, he played yeah. no guys yeah, do yeah. this play the week before slam and team does it decently routinely should probably do it more take a winston salem wild card or just enter normally at this point um he plays a lot and it, it worked out for him and he he i mean the one thing where i don't think it's progress per se for team or where I don't think, like, wow, breakthrough. He's made two semis years before, and he lost in straight sets to Djokovic or Nadal in those two previous semis. So Pretty, you're saying he did the exact same thing that one he was round later, to do. Right, one round later. against He didn't get to play any of those tough guys. He got checked out in the semis instead this time. But and I still so, think so he then, managed the tournament better. I, I'm not saying he didn't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I'm, not, I'm saying in past years, I'm not, I can't remember his previous early rounds, but I feel like he's been getting, this has been, he's been okay at this. He's the Prince of Clay. Yeah. I mean, Tony Nadal says that he's going to be the guy that picks up the torch whenever Rafa chooses to relinquish it, which might not might not be for another decade. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this it was the final that was supposed to happen. It was. It was the right final, and it still wasn't all that close. But the best part of the tournament in terms of intrigue was Marco Cecchinato. Made it to the semifinals out of nowhere, ranked 72nd. Hadn't had many big results at all. He won Budapest, a pretty weak ATP 250 earlier in the spring, so that got him into the top 100 for the first time. And then he pulled off... His draw was not easy at all. Uh, he went 10-8 in the first match. He was, down, the, two, he was yeah. down two sets to love yeah. to Marius Kopel, uh, and then had to pull that out 10-8, and then plays Trungaliti, picks up the, the Trungaliti mm-hmm. mojo. Um, but yeah, I mean, it then knocks off... Uh, what was it? Karina Busta, number yeah. 10, number 8, Daffy Goffin, and Ugh. Djokovic. And... The Djokovic match obviously was was really high quality. It was probably the best men's match of the tournament, I think. Djokovic Chekinata, or most yeah. like fun, intriguing, uh, entertaining tennis. Um, Tiebreak. Yeah, a great tiebreak in the fourth set. So, yeah, and then he and then he actually played team pretty tough. He did. Team, team didn't finish him off maybe as quickly as he could have. There was a great second set tiebreak in that match. Um, like I said, yeah, I am super into just eliminating the ATP tour and just having it be Marco Chekinato plays tiebreaks. Invite the invite the challengers, and I will pay, play you in a tiebreak. I would absolutely fund that tour. That Forget sounds, the Labor Cup. This is better. That's, I mean, the dude was playing epic tiebreaks. I mean, it was insane. That's entertainment. Place your bets. Um, <laughs> there's your tiebreak tens. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Djokovic had an, I thought, encouraging tournament. 
up until he lost to Chekhanato. And even then, that wasn't that bad. I mean, like, okay, he kind of collapsed. He definitely collapsed in the fourth set. Chekhanato came back, played inspired to finish. But overall, I think this is a positive turn for Djokovic. Mm-hmm. Um, whether he sees it that he, way or he not. He definitely that's... did not. He marched himself into room two and was as pouty and sulky as I've ever seen a player. Um, refused to go into the room that was because room two had been decommissioned. At this point, there were no cameras, no microphones in there. The whole problem for all the radio reporters who needed clean audio and stuff. Uh, so anyway, so Djokovic was not happy. We'll see how he turns around. I think he's in Queens. Queens, yeah. Uh, playing there, yeah. So we'll we'll see how he does. And he, I think he's he looked he's trending in the right direction. He got the team back together, the band back together, Marion Vida, and a couple other people who are on his team as well. Yeah, I think that he's. Uh, doing big things any other men's points you mentioned Trinkaliti that was by far my favorite story of the tournament before the demolition uh, which wasn't really a story per se but like that was just that was cool that was a very pure fun moment of sort of wow this sport is wacky and funness and and, and Bernie was involved <laughs> the supporting <laughs> character uh, your obsession with the Bernie transcript is I was in that room it was it was uh, memorable yeah I guess so I don't know it was short <laughs> any other men's points um no, just shout out to Diego Schwartzman for getting a set off of, of Rafa, so he should get like some sort of Another award. big comeback match. Oh my gosh. Other other favorite moment of the, of the men's tournament was Diego Schwartzman charming the oh, hell yeah. out of Mariana Veljevic. <laughs> while, if y'all haven't seen while it. While venting about a, what what both Kevin and Diego said, or both imply with someone who was in the Anderson box or something. It sounded at first like he was talking about Kevin himself, because I guess Kevin does cheer a lot, but I guess he was talking about someone else in the Anderson box who was cheering a lot as well. Um... And just his way of just sort of being, like, annoyed. But at the same time, like, chair empires exist only to be sort of vented at and never to be, like, you never see them, like, won over by a player. They're always just sort of, like, dread, like okay, shut up already. When are, you, when are they going to go away? I can turn peace and quiet. But the smile on Veljevic's face after he walked <laughs> away, just like, ugh. Anyway, that's, Schwartz, that's Schwartzman one. charm, man. He's a special one. I'm so here for Diego Schwartzman. World Tour Finals. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. Just throwing it out there. He's already seated 11 here, makes the quarters. I mean, he's got yeah. points on the back end as well, yeah. but let's go for it. Why not? I want Diego in that photo. Um, so that's the men's tour. And you mentioned earlier, just to pivot head to it before we get to the women, uh, now pitch the grass, and it seems like the dominance in the role of overwhelming favorite, previously played Rafael Nadal, will be Roger Federer in tonight's performance for the next month. And he already got back number one ranking, which is ping-ponging back and forth uh, by winning, or making this final of Stuttgart, which he then won. Um, yeah, I, I I, think it's fine. I, I do not understand people criticizing Federer so much for skipping clay or thinking that it should count against his number one ranking somehow. It's more impressive if you play a very part-time schedule and are still number one. <laughs> I don't understand how the math doesn't work that way. Um, and I don't begrudge him maximizing and being a selective. And also, if I'm an Nadal fan, why am I mad that the guy who's beaten my player five straight times is skipping out on clay? Like, honestly, like, what part of that is bad? I just... I, I don't get it. I, I don't, really don't get it. I don't understand what's so hard to understand about the number one ranking. Like, I just... I just... I just don't get it. Like, it's... It's it's a pretty simple calculation. It's... the I, There's no style points involved. Yeah, like... And the thing is, and I'll say this, I, I say it a lot, I feel like, because I have to, probably, because it ping-pongs around on the WTA tour, but, like, don't be mad at the person at number one. Be mad at everybody else. Like, if you don't think that Roger should be number one, okay, well, then be mad at, like, 
you know, Rafa getting injured, not be mad, but like be bummed that he was injured and be couldn't mad, play be, on the hard courts and be, pick up points or like be mad at Svera for being a slam yeah, flop. Like, like be mad at the people who can't get there. Don't be mad at the person who got there. Like that makes no sense to me. It's it's incredibly childish, petulant fan behavior. I just don't understand that at all. Like yeah. that person got there, that person is sitting there. Like, if you don't think that person should be there, then be mad at the field. It's as simple as that. Can we switch to talking about the women's number one? If you choose. Who is that, Courtney? And what did she do? <laughs> oh, has it only been a week? Um, Simona Halep finally gets it done. 0-3 uh, in her previous slam finals, and I think that uh, uh, her story has been well documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably by me. Uh, 80% of it, uh, at least in the English-speaking world. Um, but yeah, finally gets it done. Um, does it in the most poetic and fitting way insofar as reversing pretty much every single other result that she like all the reasons why she lost the other three finals 2014 french open 2017 french open 2018 australian open she absolutely rectified to come back from a set and a breakdown to sloan stevens reminder simona halep was a set and a break up on yelena ostapenko last year um physicality basically wore Sloane Stevens out over the course of that match. Uh, and if we don't forget, in Australia, she ended up in the hospital uh, with dehydration yeah. after basically running out of gas against Caroline Wozniacki. And in a, in a situation where, you know, you look at back at the, the 2014 final against Sharapova, she was the underdog. She, it was kind of all new and she was inexperienced and she was in, still obviously right in that match. But here she's she was the favorite um, although I think getting the, when I was walking around the press room that day, the sense I was getting from a lot of people were like, I don't know. It was 50, it, it felt 50, 50, it was genuinely 50, 50. Yeah, it felt genuinely 50, 50. So for her to come through and get through that, not just that match, but also the, the Muguruza semifinal standing tall in that second set, which was massive coming back from a, a set down against Kerber. Um, prior to that, uh, yeah, I mean, she, it just felt like everything that Halep has been criticized for and mocked for with respect to mental edge, not handling her tournaments well, choking, all these sorts of things that, you know, have been levied against her. She kind of answered all of them over the course of seven matches. Um, in so doing that, she consolidates the number one ranking, holds off Muguruza and uh, and uh, Wozniacki, um, who were charging for it. Um, but yeah, Simona Halep is a Grand Slam champion. And it's like, it's just nice to finally kind of like like break that duck of like yeah. okay that that story not that it's done but that's that arc the Simona is that the chapter was, is done yes yeah, exactly. it's done and one stat that I was sort of fascinated by on that on the day was that she was the first slamless number one who got her first slam while still number one I mean there's a lot of people obviously names Wozniacki Yankovic, Yankovic Safina, Safina even earlier Kleisters and Moresmo both I think Kleisters definitely played a slam as number one. 03 Open. Pliskova, yeah, played last year's US Open. There, I mean, it's tough being that person who is always, it's news when you lose and you're seen as a, a failure as being a number one who can't get it done. Uh, she hasn't had that much time at number one, really. I mean, she's had it half a year yeah. um, on only one previous slam and she acquitted herself very well at that slam in Australia. No one was really ripping her too hard after that tournament, I can't imagine. Going deep in that final against Wozniacki. And how well she played that tournament against Kerber and against Lauren Davis and everything. That was a great tournament for her. I mean, she's played two really good slams this year. And it worked. And it's just, it's just it's just sort of a relief in the same way 
it felt like the result that was sort of supposed to happen. Like almost in terms of in a much less, much much less extreme way than Rafa. Like if everything sort of holds at the French Open, what happens? Like you can say, oh, something random will happen. It'll be another Ostapenko. It'll be, I don't know, who would it be? Contevite winning or something. Right. Uh, the country probably has more pedigree than Ostapenko had last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, she did. <laughs> but but uh, Halep winning just sort of felt like it was time. It was what was sort of supposed to happen, and both number one seeds won the tournament. Which first happen. time since... Uh, At the French, it was the first time since, like, Courier and Sellas in, like, yeah. 93 or something, 92, It was the first time at any tournament since, I want to say... Wimbledon one year, but anyways. It feels like it would have happened pretty recently because Serena was winning at, at number one so much. It might have been that year with Serena. Anyways. No, anyway. But um, but but obviously my my thoughts on Simona have been made clear and like written about like a gazillion times in terms of her arc and covering her and all that sort of stuff. So I'm just gonna pose the question to you, Ben. Like, what do you what do you make of that chapter now that it's done in terms of her yeah that arc i think she's remarkably um what's the word for it unnervingly human as it as a champion as a number one and we've seen so many moments of weakness from her and so much vulnerability and she's open and honest with that vulnerability in this way that's sort of like why would you not put why would you not put why would you like point out all of your like weaknesses as a person about to go into battle for these huge prizes but she, that she's been open and honest and, and very raw at a lot of things. And she's had a lot of low moments. Even the Rome final very recently, you go out there and you're like, Simona, what are you doing, lady? Like, come on. Like, again, another flop and like deep into a big WTA tournament. Going into the, the final, she had lost six uh, of her last seven finals. I mean, that's... The, a- the flopping hadn't happened very much at slams recently. Um, she'd been pretty good at the slams for a while. Um, so that was, I was not, I was not worried that she was going to go out there and lay an egg against Sloan or against Muguruza. Well, Muguruza maybe a little bit more, but she did it. I had Muguruza as a heavy favorite. I thought so too. That was, that was the big, that was more impressive to me than the final was the Muguruza With number one on the line too. I mean like, and we've seen that first set she came out just like guns blazing and absolutely stunned Muguruza. The Muguruza got her bearings and really made it a match and Halp stood very tough and tall in that match and. Long service game to, or. Yeah, for all game game or something. Yeah. It was it was very impressive. Um, yeah, I, I think Simona is. It's good to have her in the mix. Now, sort of put her at like. I guess like a Muguruza level or something. We're just like you. They got their first slam. We don't think it will be their last. Maybe it will be, but we don't think it'll be their last. And if there if it is, there's no shame in that. I guess. Um, but let's see what you can do from here. Right. Like hopefully pressure's off. You know, pressure's off until you've won two of the other ones have to complete your career slam at, you know, New York or whatever. That's a very in-the-future scenario for <laughs> Simona. But she should. she's not old. She's not like Wozniak. She's younger than Wozniak. And Wozniak had also been on tour for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Made her first slam final oh, in 09. She's 26 years old, I mean, yeah. which means that she's got, at a minimum, 16 more slams to play. Four more years yeah. to 30. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's I mean, 16 chances. Yeah. And hopefully she goes out playing freer than ever before. Yeah, and that's that, and, the biggest and, and, question. And, and is she's like, somebody who should, new... I think, would respond really well to that. With Wozniacki, I got the sense because it had been longer. Again, with Wozniacki, I got the sense more like ah, uh, finally, like she got to quench the slam thirst, and I wasn't sure the hunger would be back. And I still, if I had to guess, I don't think Caroline. It's not really time for this hot take. It's kind of out of nowhere here, but probably won't win more slams. I had her moment. Maybe she'll get another one. That'd be great for her if she does. 
but sort of got her moment and was sort of checked off the box. With Simone, it really does feel like the start of something, or at least, you know, turning, ending a very tough chapter and getting mm. to sort of a happier honeymoon phase now, where at least she gets yeah. a couple years to sort of, you know, go out there and play and, and, and be free and especially if the field remains this open. We don't know if it will. Right. Maybe a clearer favorite will emerge. Maybe Muguruza, who I still think has the potential to be a huge alpha on this tour if she gets her head together and her gets more stability and sort of, yeah, she can do it. Yeah. We'll see what Serena has in store for the tour for the next sure. six slams maybe. Um, Svitolina's yet Svitolina's to kind of... again is, yeah, somebody she's... else who's on the verge. So I don't yeah. know how it could be this sort of how at the moment could be an interregnum between the Serena yeah. past and whatever is in the future. Or it could be something more long. I don't know. But it's it's nice to see her breakthrough and nice to see her, her do it. And it was just not gifted to her at all. Like, it was not a moment like an Ostapenko where this, with, until the final, the draw had really broken her way in terms of who you... Every draw she got was like, oh, that's a pretty good person playing in this round of the tournament. Halep had to work through Kerber, had to work through Bert, Mertens, Mertens yeah. who was not an easy draw, and she beat her pretty soundly 2-1 and one in that Pekovic. fourth round. Pekovic the first was, set of Pekovic was, so was amazing. Good. Absurd. It was so good. It was, good. So it was good. great to see Pekovic playing that well again at this tournament. Out on court 18. I, it, oh, was, it was really good. It was so good. It and then, good. unfortunately, Pekovic rolled her ankle. And yeah, tweaked her knee. Tweaked yeah. her knee. That's yeah. Right. yeah. And, uh, but she said it was nothing major, hopefully. So that's all good for her. And then, yeah, and then Simona beats Magruza and then beats Sloan. On Sloan, I guess. This, again, is sort of, I think she's sort of in the category where I'm hoping that Simona is now, where you've got your mm. slam and you're confident and you believe you can do it. And why not? You know, you go and determine. I mean, Sloan didn't have much of a clay court pedigree. She's always liked clay courts, but the results statistically had never been that great for her. Had never made a quarterfinal here before. But made here. four straight fourth rounds. Right. And it was the to, most consistent. And lost to some really good players. Yeah, it was the rounds, French so. Open was always her most consistent slam yeah. with respect to results. But she was just coming out here killing people mm-hmm. in this tournament. Uh, she had a very tough match in the third round against Camilla Georgie, 8 6 in the third. And then she just rolled. But otherwise, she was rolling. Yeah. Uh, she rolled Contevite 2 0. Roll Casakina three and one. And she one. was rolling against Halep. She was rolling Not against like Halep. super rolling. It was but it was, was getting comfortable. It was like six three two zero. Yeah, I mean she looked then, like the better. So player. what do you think happened in that match? I don't know. Um, I really don't. I mean we've we've talked about it and we've we've debriefed it. I mean we all identified separately, like from our different areas, like where we were all working. Identified the very and everybody has identified the very moment where you were like, oh my god, Sloan is blinking. Yeah. Like you know, but uh, which was a, the, yeah two yeah. one the fourth uh, the fourth game where she she got broken uh, and hit the double fault and rolled a first serve in and all this sort of and stuff. It's winded. There's his first point. See, and that's the yeah. thing is that th- this is where the debate happened. Is like because I didn't talk to any of you guys and I yeah. was doing the live blog um, for the WTA website and my take on it was nerves. But then talking to everybody else, everybody else's take of, on it was, oh, Sloan got tired. It could be both. Which, is not, which could be both, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, and then when we tried to ask her about it, she wasn't um, particularly, like, rev- like she didn't say. No. Sloan, um, Sloan's not a, a good narrator for her own tennis, right. generally. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we'll, maybe, maybe Kamal will say eventually, but even he's pretty close-lipped about Sloan's tennis. Yeah. So, no, so, um, yeah. so I don't know what exactly happened, but I do know that what was so impressive to me watching that final, especially that second set, how it played out, was that, again, I mean, what Halep has been criticized for for the last 12 months coming out of the Ostapenko match was that 
when things got tired, when things got tight, she got passive and she backed off. And the thing about that match is from the very first ball until the very last ball, she never backed off. And I think that over time, yes, Sloane was getting the better of her in the long rallies and the mid-ball and the mid mid-range rallies. Um, for about an hour and 15 minutes Mm -hmm. and then but she just kept pressing kept pressing and that's when Sloane started to buckle and it was by the end she did look tired Sloane um towards the end it just felt like yeah that one break point ball that that uh that Halep got in the third set um chasing down that drop shot and that you know ping pong thing at the net I think that was kind of the soul crusher double net cam double net cam that was so cool um but yeah no I mean Sloan has, though, emerged as a player that, like you and Renee identified it on the WT Insider podcast that we did after the first week, where like people were looking at, okay, the bottom half is breaking apart with the exits of Wozniacki, with the exits of Svitolina uh, and uh, Osipenko and Kvitova, who's coming through there. And both of you guys are like, Sloan. Like, yeah. if you think about somebody who's, who is who is really good about being opportunistic in a good way, that's not a bad thing. You should be opportunistic. Yeah. But, ta- you know, taking care of business when she gets into the second week, she's now graduated into that realm where she's now, I think, especially with this run, she's a player that you have to look out for in the draws now. She absolutely could give right? some like tutoring. Like, she's earned that 100%. She could give some tutoring to Sasha Zverev in terms of tournament management. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, though, no, because she... Right had her mindset once she got and winning a slam is huge for this obviously not for everybody but for her it was very much sort of like achievement unlocked and you sort of know what you're doing and how to play the end game of a slam and obviously her first slam experience deepest experience 2013 australian open was crazy beating serena and then having that wild Wild match against vika all the stuff all the nonsense happening in that match and so that was a huge trial, baptism by fire, and she didn't recover from it for a while. But once she did, she sort of now is a pretty battle-tested person. And her match, we haven't mentioned Madison Keys yet, that semifinal, was 4-4, four and four, but didn't feel anywhere near as close as that score, honestly. Someone was just so in control and so composed throughout all of it. And playing this game, like, again, to mention Sasha Sparov, where when it's at its best, it looks so fluid and so tough to beat. They're just like... Sloan can absolutely win another slam this year. Oh, yeah. She can win the U.S. or Wimbledon. We said it about 10 yeah. days ago where you were like, she could be a two-time major champion in 24 hours. Remember, we yeah. were talk- about talking before the final. And that seemed crazy to say last month. Yeah. You know, but I think that, again, it, there's one thing to get your... It's, it, this is kind of where Ostapenko is right now. It's one thing to get your first slam. It's another thing to prove that you have the ability to get back and put yourself in contention to to potentially get the second one. Once that happens, then you become elevated to yeah. be okay. We got to keep an eye on you at every every tournament. I mean, it's it's a reason why, for example, I think Pliskova has yet to make that graduation. Even though she made the 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 U.S. Open final, yeah, we look out for her because we think that she's so good. But in pure metrics, I don't feel about a Carolina Pliskova. The way that I feel about, I don't know, Halep after she had made like two, you know, like not two, but like the French mm-hmm. Open and um, and Australian Open. Like, let's say like didn't win, but like you got there into two finals. Like you put yourself in a position to win them. I guess. I don't know if I, I get your theory. I don't know if the specific case study of Maybe not. I agree with because we were so high on her at the start of 2017. We weren't really high. But that was, that was, that was the start of 2017, though. But yeah, then, right after her US Open But final, that's what though. I'm saying, though. It's like that happens, but then when it goes, when you go silent a little too long, 
then, you know, and I feel like Sloane, she didn't go silent. I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. she had a terrible Australia. What Sloane like, has that I think Pliskova doesn't have is a very steady coaching rock. Sloane, sure. Kamau has, and Sloane's been through some ups and downs. The reason she's number four in the rankings now, which is great, but the reason she's not higher is because she lost everything after the U.S. Well, that, Open. I, I mean, I remember yeah. thinking that, like, um, before the, the final of, like, okay, there's a possibility that there can be a reigning two-time major champ who's ranked no higher than number four. Oh, good God. I, if that happens, like, the deluge of tweets with respect to the ranking system the or whatever. She won Shenzhen and nothing else. Exactly, tweets. that sort of thing. And I and But, like, at the end of the day, that was always the counter-argument. It's like, but then you guys also want a number one who lost eight consecutive matches? Like, wh- this is why, again, I just think it's so stupid to, like, argue about the number one ranking and who, who should be there yeah. and who shouldn't. It's, but it's math. But, um, but yeah. You mentioned Pliskova. Let's go, if we can, to this top, to this, the electric quarter of the straw, mm. which had Pliskova in it. And Pliskova got killed mm-hmm. in the third round by Maria Sharapova. Third round? Third round. Yeah. 6 2, 6 1, and it was not even as close as the score. It was stunning. It was it, less than an hour. And Pliskova is a player who, again, she never, she is always really down on her chances at the French. And she's always very, very, well, actually, she's not always humble. I wouldn't say that. But she's like, Kind of, you know, she's, she's dark. A realist. She's a realist, and she's especially on clay. She's like, I just don't feel well. Even though she had a good win over Lucy, uh, yeah, she wasn't feeling great, and she got out. And she didn't seem that surprised to get killed by Sharapova. Honestly, Sharapova was playing amazing, and it set up this match in the fourth round against Serena, who and actually Sharapova hadn't been that amazing in the tournament until the Pliskova match because she Correct. had struggled against Hogan Camp. That was bizarre. She almost lost to Hogan Camp. Remember that? Yeah. Um, and then Vekic was tight, but okay. Uh, kills Pliskova. It's like, wow, Serena could actually be up for a, could possibly lose to Sharapova for the first time in a while if she gets past Yulia Gurgis. Serena goes out after having been uh, rusty, but good enough against Chris Bliss first round. It was kind of a serving contest in that match. And then kind of willed herself past Barty. And Barty, you, meant, you talk about sort of the field and sticking up. Barty landed a couple of punches, but didn't have the moxie to finish off Serena. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, she just didn't seem to have, we talked about Schwartzman, like the sort of like, oh my gosh, am I allowed to beat Serena at a slam? Am I, am I, me, Ash, the little kid with the trophy? Um, it's, it's not yeah. even that. I think that it with the Ash match, it was almost more kind of like, oh my God, am I going to beat Serena? Like, it's, it, it's not like, am I allowed to, but just like the moment, especially when Serena literally started to roar yeah. her way back into it. And that is the reminder. And that was Serena saying, you're not. Yes. To me. That was Serena being like, let's reestablish who's who here. I think you're lovely. I'm Serena. Go away. Yeah. Yeah, she kind of did. And she, and she did. I mean, she, she tried. And again, I, I do think Ash, you know, five balls land you know, a little bit, you know, two centimeters one way or the other. I think that that's a very different match. But it's also, it's also Ash on clay. It's her worst. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, no, not, I'm not, sure, I'm not, I'm not, and she, Ash just won Nottingham today. I'm not down on Ash's future per se because of that match. It just didn't seem like she. We are never down on Ash. Never. But the, the pieces, it was interesting because in terms of clay court ability, the player of the three opponents Serena did play, uh, Gerges had that. But Gerges didn't have the big stage sort of giant killer mentality. Ash didn't have the clay court either, had decent form, was playing tactically pretty well against Serena, got took a set off her, was the only one to do that, but didn't have the big stage mentality. Chris Pliss had the big stage mentality, has the sort of swagger to do it, 
but it didn't have the game at all. <laughs> it never won a match at the French Open, but came out and they competed very credibly. And Serena against Gerges, that match was 6-3, 6-4, didn't feel that close. It was incredibly professional, incredibly nonchalant, incredibly business-like performance. It was insane how good it was, given all the rush she has. And she gets, she's going into play Sharapova, and then it doesn't happen. Didn't happen. It was a bummer, man. I was looking forward to that match. Everybody was looking forward to that, that was match. Like, we did I mean, so many preview pieces on that match. And there was so much debate. And and, and people and, actually thought that Sher- if ever people were saying, that Sharapova, was if ever Sharapova has a chance, and a lot of people, other WTA coaches were telling me, like, I think Maria could win this today. They were quietly picking Maria because she has more matches. has played a ton of matches herself either, but has more than Serena and has looked incredible against Pliskova. And, yeah, and clay better for her than for serena i still was picking once serena played gurgis i was like i still think i now i go back to picking serena we did a podcast for wt insider largely previewing that match um which will be relevant the next time they play i guess (laughs) but anyway serena pulls out with uh she played doubles the next day against maria jose martinez sanchez and andre claypatch and had an incredible interlude at the beginning about uh martinez sanchez's gamesmanship and back in 2010 or 2009, 2009. Uh, anyway, all that is to say, she doesn't play. She has a pectoral strain. It's what she cites pulling out. I'm still not sure if she would have tested that injury or not against an opponent who wasn't Maria Sharapova, and that's one of those unknowable things. You know, if she if she plays Pliskova instead, does she say, okay, I'll go out and try, won't be as physical a match per se, and also, if I lose to Pliskova, it's not the end of the world, or it's not like... You know, Serena, as 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 previously demonstrated by the Martina Sanchez thing, <laughs> Serena is like all great champions at heart, very petty about a lot of things, and owns it in a way that I think is really amusing to see. And again, very human. I mean, she care, she believe me when they were talking about the book, and she was <laughs> the book chat was amazing because Serena first of all started saying she was like looking forward to reading Maria's book, quote as a fan, which. I was in the room. It's hard not to laugh at these lines, but she says, as a fan, I was really looking forward to reading the book. As a fan. And I was like, wait, as a fan. Just to I'm... clarify, for those who don't yeah. know, Serena was asked uh, in the lead up of to before the Sharapova yeah. match about whether or not she had read Maria's book. Or comments, that, asked to respond to comments that Maria had, or stories Maria told in the book about Serena, which Serena referred to as 100% hearsay. Um, which was written on the walls during the demolition party. Yes, 100% hearsay. Uh, everything written on the walls is 100% hearsay. Uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I, I, I think it's. I think that Serena might have taken Corgan. I'm not saying it's... I totally understand her not wanting to give Maria the satisfaction. Um, but yeah, Maria gets through and... And then gets killed by Muguruza. And gets killed by Muguruza. And again, a match that I, to- I didn't totally see that scoreline coming either. I'd have... She didn't play the right way. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like... I mean, that was a very short match. It was incredibly one-sided, and Muguruza looked incredibly in control and, and dominant, and Sharapova was just slapping the ball. Like, she wasn't even trying to get into rallies with Muguruza. It was a, it was just a tactically weird match. Do you think that she might have had a physical issue now that she's possible. pulled out of Birmingham, where we are now? No, it's it's entirely yeah. possible. I mean, I, 
you know, I mean, that's all the niggles add up. I mean, she, yeah, you, you were saying she didn't have a ton of matches and I know that she didn't have a ton of matches, but leading into it, she did have that very grueling three setter in Stuttgart, then obviously makes the semi, the quarterfinals in Madrid and then semifinals of Rome, which was incredibly grueling that yeah. the Ostapenko win and then, and then Halep. Um, so those things add up and, and she had, you know, been taken to what three sets in her first match against, uh, Hogan camp. Hogan camp. So there was a lot going on, and 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 I don't know. Uh, maybe it's just a bad day. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Back to Serena briefly. Mm. Where do we think this tournament leaves her for the rest of the year? I still think I put a poll up a couple months ago. Who will play more tournaments this year, Leighton Hewitt or Serena? And Leighton is going to win this by a lot. It seems like <laughs> it does. Um, Leighton cannot get enough of the tennis, and Serena can't get. Uh, anyway, it's tough. It's yeah. tough. You know, I, I still think I think she can win Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. At this injury, the prognoses seemed not to be not severe, um, which is good, and yeah. Uh, so long as I, she I think can... I think she can if she can serve and she's yeah. playing well. Like that Gerges match, when she won the Gerges match, I was like, "Holy crap, she can win the French Open!" You guys. Well, not even the Gerges yeah. match. I mean, she was serving incredibly well against Pliskova in her opener as yeah. well. You know, I mean, so long as she has that serve. You give her a shot, uh, you know, in and to win seven matches. Movement, at wasn't, Wimbledon. movement wasn't bad. Movement wasn't bad either. I yeah. thought. I mean, again, against Gerges, she looked amazing. It, it was that was a complete match. That Gerges match was so it solid. Was com- it was total tennis, and it yeah. was as close as as it, I I I've said it a gazillion times. I was very personally very very impressed by Serena in Paris. I you know withdrawal notwithstanding, but like I just I think we saw a little bit of everything in those three matches from her. So I think that it puts her in a good position. I think that she got, you know, three wins, and that's good on her worst surface. And she has the time now to kind of prepare and gear up for grass. It's still going to be the question of, can you beat the field? Is this field, because once you get over to, to, to I mean, give her the exact same draw on grass. Looks a lot different. Well, it's a much tougher draw on grass. It's a hell of a lot tougher draw on grass, right? Chris yeah. Plus in the first... Bart Barty in the second. Come on, like that—that's brutal. We'll see if they seed her. Gurgis not great on grass, so wouldn't think. I think it's probably closer on clay than on grass. Uh, Maria, not, I give Maria, uh, Serena the edge there. Yeah. Muguruza uh, on grass. Muguruza on grass ain't easy. I mean, that—that's not an easy yeah. draw, you know. So, no. uh, again, with Serena looking ahead, you—you you got to look at the draw and you got to see. Okay, do I see enough players in the mix in her quarter? That can land punches. And the other thing I'll say about Serena in this sort of, and goes back a while, this stat, like last, I think maybe since the beginning of 2016 or even maybe 2015, even maybe losing, I just have to look at the dates and stuff and find data on it, but like even losing Da Vinci, Serena has not been good, as good late in her career in like deep in tournaments playing more back to back matches on less rest. Oh, for sure. She's, yeah, this it, is the bit, whole yeah, thing that yeah. you were saying about... She doesn't play any more one-week tournaments, right. pretty much, at all. She only enters tournaments where you get days off. And she said after, I think she lost to Pliskova, it was the 2016 US Open, which I think had been a back-to-back day. That, like She said, look, if I can't play back-to-back matches, I shouldn't be on tour. She's not playing back-to-back matches on the tournaments she plays, though. The last turn, the only two one-week tournaments she's played in the last uh, since the beginning of 2016 were she played... Rome, 2016, mm-hmm. she won that Olympics. against and Olympics. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then Auckland, ah, and she, well, she just played two brangled. matches there. You got Brengold, right? But I mean, so you know, there's not a lot of data on Serena as terms of, and I, I'm not doubting her work ethic or whatever, but 
she hasn't been great at, at turnarounds in, in this part. And Wimbledon, you do have to play back-to-back fourth-round quarters in the women's side. Mm. Um, there could be rain that could push things around, although she's going to be on center court every time. So she will be less rain-affected, I would imagine. Or maybe she'll be on well, one. Well, it depends on, depends on the draw. And they also better give women ample spots on court one. We'll see how that, or main courts. What do you make of them crowdsourcing that, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This happened a while ago. Um, so the, it's the very issue... eye rolly. Like, so, so Wimbledon sent out a survey monkey survey basically asking uh, regular ticket buyers or past ticket buyers about various different issues about scheduling. Like, what do you want to see on the main courts? Would you like to see a mix of singles and doubles? And the main one that got attention, obviously, was an equal distribution of men's and women's matches, which has not been their policy previously. They've been very, very clearly favoring the men, and it's exaggerated by the men playing a longer, you know, an LP format compared to the women's EP. Um, EPs are great. Uh, <laughs> where you get, you know, six hours single. of... Six hours... <laughs> single. <laughs> six hours of men's, of men's tennis and an hour and a half of women's tennis on most of their days on the main courts, um, or something roughly those parameters, give or take. Yeah, I, 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 crowdsourcing is a weird move, especially because they've always been such a private club and sort of doing things their own way. I'm not sure, and it's just weird. It's always weird in all these, in any context of the world, whether it's the recent, not that recent now, but like the Ireland gay marriage vote or whatever, when you're like, hmm, equality, hmm, let's put it to a vote. It's just, it's just like the kind of thing that like you should be able to be like, huh, we think we know what the right thing to do is here, and let's just do it. I, yeah, that's my take on that. No, I, I mean, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I just, I mean, when we talk about, and again, like. I don't know because, if they're going to listen to the survey also. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. They don't have to. I mean, it could just be kind of a pulse. We don't, know the, we don't know the results. No, um, I can guess. Um, mm-hmm. Because, like, you know, in the whole discussion of equal prize money that raged its ugly head again during the women's final, because why not? Let's just keep doing that. Um, and stuff, I was getting into it back and forth with people and, and Sarah Borwell, former British player mm-hmm. who's so heavily involved in, in, in tennis, uh, we were all just, and Nicole Gibbs, we were all just kind of like taught, like going back and forth of just trying to explain to fans, like y- you can't have this conversation about equality unless you recognize that it's a, there's a systematic issue that creates the unequal distribution of not just wealth and and prize money, but also opportunities and sponsor money, and uh, court time and praise, like you know inches, uh, value judgments, inches. yeah, all these yeah. sorts of things. The the deck is stacked against the women. Mm-hmm. So when you then, the only thing that was a red flag to me was just that like when you then open it up, and you create this kind of Ouroboros like dog wa- you know the tail wagging the dog situation where you're like oh well the people want it. So that we're going to keep it status quo. But it's like, no, but the people want it because this is what they have been fed and what yeah. this is what they've to- been told is the value of X versus Y. So you can't go to the people. You have the, you have the power to fix it. Fix it. That's what equal prize money at the slams is. It's an opportunity for the slams to step in and say, this is how we think it should be. Symbolically. Symbolically. Yeah. Whether or not the numbers and the economics and the market matches... We're stepping in and we're saying this is how it should be, and and one of and one of my favorite phrases on or one of my favorite squares on the Billie Jean King bingo board, <laughs> it, which is one of my favorite boards of all time, is is the I got the, Billie on my shirt. Oh yeah, you're wearing your Billie shirt. Oh oh nice. Shirt. Oh I like that one. Yeah. Is uh, the money is the message or yes. whatever, and it is it's the symbolism of it, and it is symbolic these tournaments, and it's ironic that the tournaments where there is equal pay, most of the tournaments the slams because the other two are 
other three are in New Orleans, Miami, and Madrid. Um, most of the equal pay tournaments have the men playing a longer format. It's when they both have best of three is where there's less equal prize money, which is just weird. Um, it just because people are like, yes, they should get more money because they play longer matches. It's like, well, that's well, actually the opposite on? of what's happening everywhere else on tour. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Ouroboros-ness, very good use of that word, is interesting. And I also think it's a really interesting time for this debate too, because oh my god, there were so many more interesting matches for the women at the French Open. You had in the first round of the French Open this year, they stuck to their format. Two men's matches, two women's matches on each of Chatre and Longlon for the most majority of the tournament. They put women last. They get moved more often. I see you, France, but okay, whatever. Um, and, and on the first day, I think, they had a match on Longlon between Shapovalov and John Millman. It was a first-round match. Neither of whom had ever won a match at the French Open before. And meanwhile, on court one, you got Muguruza and Kuznetsova. Both of them are former champions. And if you're sticking to the two and two format, it was arguable that day that Muguruza Kuznetsova was possibly the fifth best women's match of that day. It wasn't insane. I mean, I would have put uh, Sharapova Hogan camp behind it, but Halep was playing that day. Halep was number one. Serena was coming back that day. There were other, I forget what the other match that it day was. It was hard with this draw because it was quite imbalanced yeah. with respect to star top. power. Yeah, exactly. So, like, the top half had, like, but even, even, everyone. Even Fabio Fanini was out there saying it was pretty weird to have Shapovalov on, on long line by Muguruza and Kuznetsova. He gave a shot to Muguruza and Kuznetsova. And so, all this is to say for Wimbledon, if there's ever a time, Wimbledon, to think that the women deserve more or if it's equal or possibly 51% of the court time at the biggest courts, it's right now because there's such incredible widespread depth and there's so many relevant players and so many relevant matches. And again, if it's an Adal-esque romp at Wimbledon for Federer and it's just Federer and the 127 dwarves, what are we, what are we watching here? What, I don't, I, what, people want to go out there and see, I don't know, Chilich versus Donskoy first round <laughs> or do they want to see uh literally anything else <laughs> so savage you know no no i i know i'm just i just yeah i mean like it's it's tough and 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 i'm i'm the i'm the last person ben knows this i'm the last person to really complain about court assignments like just only because i know that there's a lot that goes into making that sausage every day mm-hmm. with respect to time zones and and rights holders and you know, who wants whom where, and Romania wants this time slot, so well then, you know, maybe court 18 is where you're going to go. Yeah, exactly, because of time zones. And also, there's one thing that often is is overlooked is also player preference. There, I mean, one thing that we don't, we did, that didn't get talked about a lot with Simona's run is that it happened within a short amount of time, because she got, she didn't play her first match until Wednesday. Yeah. On day three, day which three or four, four, which is four. which was actually so Thursday, which was actually Wednesday because they started. On oh, Sunday, Wednesday, yeah, yeah. Which was actually amazing for Allison Risk because Allison Risk had played in the Nuremberg That's final right. this Saturday, and I'm friendly with Risk's coach Billy Heiser, uh, who's coached I think his first WTA player. Risk has coached a bunch of ATP guys, mm-hmm. Smichek, Raji, Ram, etc. And he was saying like, we are so happy Super to get this stoked. Tuesday start, and like the more time the better because yeah. she was exhausted after Nuremberg. Yeah. So. so like Halep started her she tournament a on a Wednesday. Yeah, she started her tournament on a Wednesday and finished yeah. her tournament on the following Saturday. Yeah. Seven matches in that condensed time and I think that that match that was on, out on 18, that Pekovic match, I could be wrong but I suspect that part of it was also kind of like 
no, I'm going to get my match in today, wherever is the slot, then put me in. And it was like, well, we have this open slot in 18. So there's a little bit of kind of like sometimes a player wants it. And again, I don't remember the exact other matches on the table that day. But, oh, and I think, oh, going back to the previous point, one of them who's in the show, we haven't mentioned her name once this show, but Carolyn Garcia was at a mm, yes. decent turn making four bounds. She's top French woman. Yeah. And so she was getting big courts all the time, yeah. getting long, long constantly. So she was taking up a big slot. She was in the was, bottom half. No, no she, she was, was in the top, top half. Yeah, she was, she was in the top half, section. Yeah. Um, yeah. That top half was brutal yeah, from top a scheduling was, perspective. Was yeah. So, right. So all that is to say, how, when you actually look, it's, it was easy to be like, how Peshkovich on 18? What? No, crazy. But when you looked at like, Okay, who do you move her? Who do you move her ahead of? It was they did an okay job. It's just again going back to our Chilich Donsko example. Sorry to when you have that many stars. Seriously though, I mean you know I mean I don't mean to be horn tooty, but I mean that's what it is. I mean if there if there are days when there are four of the two big courts at Wimbledon, court one and center court, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We'll see how the draw plays out. But if there are days where there are four men's matches and two women's matches there. In the first week of that tournament, that's a problem. I'm gonna say, just you know, sight unseen. That will have been my eyes will be rolling, <laughs> I will be groaning. People will be like, "Come on, why do I have to go out to court 18 to watch this bonkers match between?" And it could be something like even hipstery, something like a you know Van Dewey versus Lisicki, or something with like Wimbledon intrigue or whatever. That's an extreme example, but you know they're. There's a lot of good stuff on women's side, and it's tough to know. And again, with this is get mad at the field, not the top guys who are there. Like, with no one stepping up yet to challenge Rafa and Roger, like, make them earn it out on, on court 14. I, that being said, I will say, I do loved, like, the making of Denis Shapovalov. Like, that oh, dude great. is getting, I mean, who I adore, but, like, his, he gets major court assignments for a guy who's like his resume is thin. Yeah, you know. So, but I so when they put him out there, like him versus Melman, it was his, fr- I was it was like, his first. Fun. It was his first French Open match, and he's yeah. headlining a long one. And, and again, it's a part of it's like good. I also totally understand Fanini being like very gay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just making some Fanini face and just sort of stomping around, being like, "What is what is this kid doing here?" Um, you know, I want I, I I I'm all for there needs to be children doing things in the future. And if he, he could be the guy, and, and yeah, I don't know. It, it's a lot. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm just, the Chillich Donskoy thing is like so, like, jarring. It was to too me. real, right? It was a little too real because I'm like, oh my God, that's so going to happen. Yeah. Because, like, it's Chillich because he's, like, made the final last year. So yeah. he's got, he's going to get he center has, court he has assignment. A, he has he's a, on the soft side of the draw. There's an explanation. There's yeah. an explanation. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, he's earned it. I mean, he did make the final. Is that what the people want? I don't know. I don't know. Then again, I'm not. I'm not. Maybe that's why Wimbledon should have said the survey. I, I guess. I feel bad for unbottling all this ether. So I'm mean, just said it. Marin Chilich is the nicest guy, and yeah, seriously, no, nicest guy. And I actually, just, I, his tennis is not bad to watch. Oh, that match against Delpo was trash. <laughs> and I like those two guys, but that match was so bad. Yeah. So so bad. Or that was during. That was during uh, Schwartzman at all. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So I missed a lot of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap that up. Still feeling it. So you were in, uh, let's move on to grass fully yes. for the women. You were in making your tournament debut. One of my favorite things about this year for us, mostly me, maybe you two, is we've done like a few, several mm-hmm. new tournaments. Yeah. So I went to Estoril. I don't know if I meant, I think I did mention it on a previous show. I went to Estoril 
um, we'll be going to the first time for the first time. We are in Birmingham, where neither Birmingham. of us has been. Birmingham, big ham. Birmingham. The big ham and the big E. Birmingham. Birmingham. <laughs> and for the first time since 2014. So we're kind of going a little bit off our normal beaten path. Uh, I'm going to go, I think, down to Queen's Club for a brief cameo to see your boy uh, in making his comeback after 11 months, Andy Murray. Fingers crossed that it does happen on my trip and him actually coming back. Uh, <laughs> as you never know. Uh, and yeah, uh, so it's nice seeing different places. And we've been on this carousel enough time. We just get on. San Jose will be new. San Jose is a new tournament for you, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of anything else. No, and then the one that I... Mm, I've still never done Have you ever done Winston? Never done Winston. I can't imagine doing Winston. Fair enough. And I, Newport? That I, I've never done Newport. New, I'm actually going to be in Europe during Newport yeah. this year. Oh yeah, will be too. Right. Um, I've been to the, I've been to the site. I've been to the top Hall of Fame. Yeah, I still need to go. Um, the library is really cool. Um, and I've never been to Rogers Cup. Never been to New Haven. Is one that New Haven. Once you're in New York, it's like why would I be in New Haven during U.S. Open? Anyway, uh, yeah. So, but it's been nice getting a couple new credentials add to my <laughs> pile of credentials. Or how do you have yours arranged? I saw Jimmy has has his all on yeah, a doorknob, which he says now non-operational. So each obviously. year I use the doorknob. Uh, each year I use a doorknob, and then at the end of the season, I take them all off and put them into a shoebox. So I have like by like th- three large Nike shoeboxes okay. full of credentials at this point. I have mine on a uh, clothes hanger. Oh yeah, it's like a it's like a trousers hanger yeah, with yeah. a bar. Yeah. Anyway, uh, good chat. Good chat, right? Grass. Bants. We're, we've been too long at sea. <laughs> we're out of the Schengen zone and we're doing fine, folks. Oh my gosh. I don't really want to say this on air, but I haven't told you my story about going through customs. Oh yet. my God. I'll tell you after. Okay. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. No challenges and raining. <laughs> if you want to follow along when you're not listening to us in whatever economic zone you're in, uh, or diplomatic zone, whatever, uh, follow along with us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis facebook.com slash ncr podcast that's our facebook page subscribe to us on itunes overcast really like overcast whatever other podcast application of your choice we are there um send us questions comments no challenges remaining at gmail.com actually it reminds me that i finished the address gmail.com okay um we got a question or a comment which you are, I think, better positioned to answer Uh-oh. than I. Anna Marseille asked about Serena's cat suit, which we have not mentioned, mm-hmm. and the rules about it, mm. and the player confusion over that, and the sort of what you coined, I don't know if you coined it initially there, but the fan explaining of people mm-hmm. people trying to say they knew the rules on a tire better than active WTA players mm-hmm. like Ala Kudryatseva and Arena Rodionova. Uh, can you walk us through that whole that whole thing briefly. I can try I mean I, I'll be honest I don't have the rule book right you're, in front of me you're not a referee so, so not usually, I, yeah. I'm not if I but I do know that for a fact there are rules with respect to the attire on the WTA tour and uh, some of them are, I mean honestly you can go back and you can look at all of Kudryatseva's tweets on it I mean she's pretty accurate um, typically especially like in cold weather situations you'll see the players out there in three quarter length leggings Um which I'd never my, noticed before. My yeah. understanding is actually that they're not even supposed to be three-quarter length. And again, I just want to add the caveat, I'm not looking at the rules right now. This is just like me off the cuff, off the top of my head. So please do not come back and be mm-hmm. like, you're fucking wrong. Um, so, But my understanding is that actually the leggings are not supposed to go below the knee. Now, obviously, a lot of players and a lot of 
clothing manufacturers make three-quarter length leggings, which go to mid-calf. Sometimes what you'll see in a lot of instances is players will take the court and that has been scrunched up to be right below the knee. So that would lead me to believe that you are not allowed to have full length. Now, mind you, with respect to Serena's catsuit, I'm talking about WTA rules. WTA rules are not ITF rules. What the yeah, slams enforce is separate, just like they do with the time violation, you know, time and between points and whatever. So coaching, yeah. right? Exactly. So, so I'm just talking on the tour level. But having spoken to players, typically they're not allowed to wear leggings below the knee. Secondly, you're not allowed to wear leggings bare. Um, so that's why the, you have all the awkward situations of them putting, having to put the skirt or shorts over the leggings. That you can't just wear leggings out on court. Mm-hmm. I assume that comes from a fairly antiquated decorum. A modesty. A modesty yeah. kind of thing mm-hmm. of just like bearing it all out there. So that is, I think, why there was a, there was a bit of confusion from the players particularly low-ranked players because they have encountered it probably more because they're playing in tournaments either on the challenger circuit or you know the lower level itfs that are like in areas where the weather's not always that you know it's not picturesque rome it's not picturesque madrid or whatever budapest in april kind of stuff but if you get a supervisor or referee that is that is applying the rule the law it can't uh, rule the rule book then you walk out there and they're like those so but i have been told you can't wear full-length leggings but and Serena, then you all, and you also have to wear a skirt over the leggings. Yeah, Serena said she got her outfit approved, or that she she assumed. I think I don't know if she actually said this definitively, but she assumed that, or the practice is that Nike sends in outfits to get approved. They definitely do Wimbledon. Wimbledon definitely wants pre approval from outfits all the time, whether she did the French Open or not. I don't know, but that would be the practice, and they let her play. And if there are separate rules for Serena and everybody else, honestly, not the end of the world. The catsuit was cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, but yeah, the to that specific question, that is why when the weather is cold, the players are bundled up in a weird way because there's just certain things that they can and they cannot wear on the court. Could you wear like three-quarter length leggings and like knee socks? That's a good question. You probably could. Well... I mean, you must be able to because if you wear knee socks, like obviously Bethany or anybody else who wears knee socks or compression socks, um, that's allowed. So I would think so. Also, I know, I don't know if anyone's thinking this, and Reem Abuleil pointed this out, that for uh, Fatma, the Mm, Amani player, there's like, she has religious exemptions Mm -hmm. or religious considerations, whatever, to wear more coverage as a Muslim woman, which is permitted. Which is good. Um, and again, I don't, that have, would again I, don't have, I don't have strong feelings on a leg no, no, no. Way, but, but but my point is like that yeah. would imply that there are rules, right? Like if there's an exemption, yeah. then there are default rules. My whole point of all that is like, yeah, don't if a player is explaining to you what their experience is, like don't go and tell them they're freaking wrong. Like that's just so rude. I don't know. Like I just it was just whatever. It's just a lot of Twitter strategy and a lot of and yeah, fan explaining of just everything. A reminder to people, the WTA rulebook is on the website. You can download it as well and you can run a control F search just like I do when I get these questions typically. So if you ha- I mean it's not a secret. It's all out all the entire rules, all of the Ranking points, entry list, fine information, all that. It's all in the rule book. So feel free to print it out and read it like I do during the off season. So that's a mini rant rave for us there. <laughs> uh, off a the question. Thank you, Anna, for that question. 
uh, yeah, any other further thoughts, feelings on things? I will go first. Okay, so I have several because um, I've been like thinking through the shift while like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Okay. First one's small, but maybe the most important. I feel, I just spent the last week in Berlin and I thought this before, but now I'm very confident in saying out loud that I think that as a system that German bakeries better than French. Oh, ooh, that is a take. It's a take, right? Explain. I, for whatever reason, like... I don't necessarily disagree. No, I but for whatever, whatever, whatever reason, yeah. the, the samplings and everyone, French bakeries are exalted and mythologized. And we have a good one on our way to site. Um, we're pretty good anyway. Just the selection of things that are at German, and even a lot of them are not the same sort of like, in France, it's much more mom pop. And Germany, there's a lot more chain bakeries, or baccarais. Uh, that they have there and just the selection of like hot steamy pretzels with all sorts of big seeds like pumpkin seeds or sesame seeds or uh, sunflower seeds uh, those are great and they're and the, oh, the pumpkin seeds especially they get so toasty that's oh, just wonderful and they had this oh the one that was in Berlin near me in Alexanderplatz had these like um, sesame like feta rolls or sort of like a cinnamon Whoa. roll they were so good I had three of them today <laughs> Before I left, it was great. Also, I also really enjoyed my muesli experience in Germany. I thought very briefly about buying a separate suitcase to pack more muesli for the rest of this wow. trip. Because I have no, my bags, are, I've way overpacked for this trip and have accumulated more stuff along the way, which is a problem. But now that I'm in England for a month and not have to fly for a month, I can sort of reevaluate things. And I was like, how much muesli can I take? Should I, can I ask Petra to bring me muesli? Will this be weird? <laughs> uh, our German friend, Petra Phillipson. I will not make not her bring me muesli. No. <laughs> or Patrick Kvitova. is not going to bring you German muesli. also already now. in England. But um, <laughs> I thought about that. But no. uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's my first take is that uh, I think just the German selection is better. Um, they Everything with Mit Casa is just good. It's just like a good, solid, here, throw some cheese on it. It'll be fine. Yep. It's less fancy. Um, and actually, it, it trends more towards salty mm -hmm. than towards sweet, which is, I think, plays, for me anyway... I, I like I don't like sweet things for breakfast per se. I try to keep sweet in the sort of dessert sphere when possible. Um, so yes, yeah, so this is this is a, a strong take of mine. And I feel like German food in general is just kind of I, I didn't have great food in Berlin honestly, but um, it's underrated in terms of the continent, and it's much better than the island we're on now. So um, that's my first uh, my shots. my first take. Do you have I have more? But I'll let you. Okay. I'll pass the ball across the net. Um. I guess this will be a rant, although it's weird to, like, couch it as such. But it's, like, really weird to be in the midst of a slam. Ugh, this is going to get so dark really quickly. But, like, to be in a, the midst of a slam or a tournament or, like, whatever. And, like, have some, like, and then, like, have something tragic happen. Like, so, like, it was weird to, like, during the, towards the oh. end of, towards the end of the, the French Open with um, the news and Anthony Bourdain had died, which was like, yeah, I was still, I think I'm still processing it. Um, but it was like, I, for 48 hours, like I would just be, if my mind wandered away from tennis at all, like I would just start crying and I would just like, like just start tearing up at my desk and have to like go outside and just like deal with it. Um, and like it, I mean, not the exact same things, but like I was at Indian Wells when my dog died, yep. which Ben was very well aware of. And as he tried to talk me off of my emotional ledge, not talk me off, but you were great. You were very supportive insofar as we just like went and eat, watched Broad City. It was fine. Um, 
but it's weird. It's it's just it was it it's was, a weird bubble that gets pierced. Yeah, like because yeah. you're you're in it and and you're just you know every day you have your routine and you're just kind of living this weirdly not frivolous. I don't want to say this this life is frivolous, but we're, what are we doing? You know, like at the end of the day, like we're not sleeping, we're barely eating. We're risking cracking our teeth on those baguettes from the press center. <laughs> those are bad. Another point in the Germany column on those baguettes. Thank you, game, set, match, Deutschland. Um, but because they're not playing Mexico. There you go. Oh, <laughs> so brutal. Um, but yeah, like, and then, and then, yeah, to just have that kind of realness drop in. I don't know. It was, it was, it was a hard finish to the tournament. I think in in some ways maybe that made the demolition party quite also cathartic. Like it was like the for a few hours just pure fun you know and yeah. it was all about tennis and i could just distract myself for a little while but um but yeah i'm still very very sad and kind of shooken up about it and not shaken up but you know it sucks it's weird it's weird to like think about a complete stranger as being someone who really did like just kind of served as like this this mentor like this life mentor of like, oh man, like he sees things so clearly and I, I want to see things that clearly yeah. as well. And, you know, and definitely kind of change the way that, that I approach the world and travel and people and, you know, the value that you get out of, out of opening yourself up to new experiences, which I used to never do, which mm-hmm. is like a weird thing. Um, and now you're going to Sir Togenbosch. <laughs> and now I just roll into Sir Togenbosch being like, yeah, what's up? But yeah, it, it, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird second week of that tournament to kind yeah. of. Or not second week, like last three or four days. Mm, weird, yeah. But, um, yeah. There you go. Uh, all right. I've, I thought of so many more during that thing. So I want to like keep quick, going. quickly speed rant through these. Okay. <laughs> speed uh, rant. Very, I'll try to make these in ascending order of length. Very quickly, Manon Lenard, who was oh, your yes. discovery oh. at French Open. Uh, she is mm-hmm. magical. She is a French Open junior, a teenage girl playing the junior draw. And she is so throwback in all the best ways. She dresses like she's like a 1940s, 50s player in this like very loose white thing with this headband. She, her hair was outstanding. It looked kind of like a Peanuts character, so I kept wanting to say. It had this sort Some of... Some Natalie Toziat realness. It was it was great. Anytime you see her... And she ser- she's the player that... Ser- for those of you who follow me on Twitter, and I said I just saw a junior serve and volley down match point, it was Manon Lenard. To finish a story, she lost it. <laughs> she missed the volley badly. <laughs> it was terrible. But the intention was great. And she plays like a very throwback style of game as well. And lots of feel, lots of variety. It reminds me of the way we used to get excited about in the early, in her junior days of Taylor Townsend. Mm, yeah. When she put that a bit similar. But this is way further. Yeah. Way further than Taylor. And then Taylor did have great style too. She had that big old bow. Yeah. It's great. She bring back the bow, Taylor. Um, that's not a rant, but it could be. Uh, okay. Other things. Um... Oh, I mentioned I thought of this when I mentioned Mexico. I haven't tweeted almost at all about the World Cup this year. Almost entirely because I do not want anyone telling me that the sport is not called soccer. Oh my god. It is the biggest pet peeve of mine. It It is is so so stupid. Stupid. And I don't understand. Like we are in England now. We are here like a month a year, roughly three weeks a year, whatever. There are plenty of terms that don't cross. Like, we, I'm staying in a flat that if I was in the U.S. would be called an apartment. And that doesn't seem to offend British people or people around the world, whatever. But for some reason, and I am trying, I was trying to think of, like, a, a tennis equivalent. Like, imagine if, like, um, 
in tennis like the French I was thinking that the French word for backhand is like they say like right shot and then like a reverse mm-hmm. imagine if like British people or Americans let's say Americans instead of saying backhand called the shot a reverse which is an equally valid term sure, sure why not but every single time we use the word reverse, we're like, no, it's a backhand. Like, I don't think that would happen. No. There's just some weird hang-up about soccer and football. You've heard I... my whole thing about this, right? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> We've had many discussions um, over the time. But the, the, I think it's a stupid thing. I think it's this way that like non-Americans want to get all up about, like, you Americans don't know anything about about football, soccer, whatever. Meanwhile, we just watched a whole documentary about how bad England is. Which, I mean... Which is a great documentary. It was amazing. If you haven't seen Impossible Job... Impossible Job. It's a documentary about how every English team England manager is doomed to failure. Manager, coach, manager, coach. Oh, my God. This is the thing, right? Okay. Are they on the pitch or the field? (laughs) You can't say field. It's a pitch. Oh, my God. It's also a field. Shut up. (laughs) I feel like Diego Schwartzman. You're like, yeah, shut up. Yeah. But, but, but so my thing about using the word soccer is when I say soccer, every single person in the entire globe knows what I'm referring to, which is that game of football that you guys all call football. If I say football, there is an entire continent of people who are going to sit there, two continents actually. Because the Europeans know that football means something else to you too. Yes. And so like if, you, so if, therefore, if, if, if you're, you're trying saying, to communicate and be clear, soccer is the clearest way you, to if, describe soccer. If you tweeted like in November, I'm at my cousin's football game, it's awesome. People would not know in the UK for sure what sport you meant. Correct. If you say soccer, everyone will know. It's this unambiguous term. It's therefore the better term. And... I'm not even saying you should call it soccer. I'm not saying stop calling it football. But do not get the mad. The Brits People, called it soccer first. Continue. I know. It's, just, it's a British invention. I just don't under, it re, And then non-Brits take it up too. Like I saw Enrico, yeah. who's a friend of ours from Italy, saying like it's football. It's like, in your country it's called Calcio. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like why, why does it matter? And there's also plenty of other countries besides the U.S. that call it soccer. Our 2026 co-host Canada calls it soccer. South Africa, who was in 2010, they call it soccer. Australia. Australia calls it soccer. They have the Socceroos. I'm assuming then that New Zealand also calls it soccer. I'm not sure about India. It could be 50-50 there. It's enough. It's not like some... And even if it was just the U.S., bitch, there's 300 million of us. We get our say on these things. And we're just talking about it ourselves. And, like, the correcting of us, again, if, like, they said, like, I got hit by a truck today. You didn't get hit by a truck. You got hit by a, a lorry. <laughs> like, what? No one would ever say that. So why there's this entitlement to do it about soccer? Why it's so triggering for people? That it's word... It's so stupid. It really annoys me. Pardon my English. Get the fuck over it. Amen. Enjoy the soccer and get the fuck over it. Just, who cares? It's like the dumbest trope. The dumbest trope. It's not cute. It's not cute. It's not cute. And secondly, another rant related. (laughs) Fingers coming out. (laughs) Double-handed ranting. (laughs) Here, go ahead. Lay it on me. The inability, and obviously this is going to be something that happens on social media, but I'm going to refer specifically to Twitter. I'm an American. Yeah. I speak American. Mm-hmm. Do not come at me and t- try and tell me that I'm speaking the wrong the wrong type of English or whatever. Like, this is not necessarily related to the football soccer thing. But, like, references. Like, if I make a reference and you don't get it, and then you get mad at me because I just made a reference that you don't get because you live in, like, I don't know, anywhere else. I'm like, I'm sorry that I just made a reference on a show that is an American television show as an American, and you don't get it. Like, the, it's so, it's, uh... I was trying to come up with a way to say that Dominic Team was the first guy from his generation, or the first guy, honestly, younger than Milo Tronic, <laughs> yeah. is what I was coming up with to make a slam final. 
And what and I was like thinking, okay, when are they born? Ronich was born like late nineteen ninety or something nineteen ninety. Uh, Teams born ninety three. It's like okay, what happened between then? I, and I said he was like the first guy yeah. born in the Clinton administration. Is what I came up with, which was a long time ago that started, and people got so mad that I was Americanizing Dominic Team or something. I don't even know that I was being so close minded to the rest of the world. First of all. They had Bill Clinton all over the world. Everybody knew who he was. He was a big deal around the world. He's an American. And not like I'm saying like it's the first time since, I don't know, um, Murder, She Wrote season four started or something really obscure that was like insular or strange. We're going to say American things. We're Americans. And we're not like, we're not. Yeah. And, and they're also understandable things. I could have said since the Soviet Union fell or something, I realized later that would be another. But like, that would have made equally no sense. Which is Anyway. People get mad online at Ala Kudryatsova's leggings and all sorts of other things, and people need to chill. I say as I'm ranting, the people need to chill. <laughs> so be it. Um, they can all start a podcast, and they can rant that way. Yes. Okay. One more rave for our friend Renee Denfeld, mm. who uh, is, I think, doing, is at least planning to do his last tournament on tour this week in Hala, and he is lovely and wonderful and a great addition to the press room. And to the tour, these last several years, he's been doing it more full-time. Respect that And hustle. he is a very hard worker and a, been a great person to have around. And it's been thunder and lightning getting exciting with him, <laughs> as he would say. And yeah, yeah, we'll miss you. Legit, yes. Renee, why are you leaving us? Um, do I have anything else? One more. <laughs> I, I had a lot. I told you I had a lot. Go, All right. Go. I should save these up for the rest of the... But we don't do the show as much anymore, so I got to get these out when I can. That's true. My last thing, this will lead into some sort of outro song. Um, I got new albums recently by Licky Lee and Lily Allen, and both of them more the Lily Allen album. Well, one song in particular. And it's just a trend in pop music, and I think especially in female pop music. They have these rap verses, or rap interludes, or rap intros in the songs that just have completely different vibes from the rest of the song. And they're so non sequitur in the song. Or I don't know what, what the, no, so oddly vibe changing and just so disconcerting and, you know, un, uh, it, mood killing, whatever you want to say. It, one of my weirdest examples of it is there's a, I'm not even a big fan of this song, but there's a Selena Gomez song called good for you which is her being you've probably heard this on at some tournament i'm sure but it's her being like all breathy and seductive and there's some guy who comes in like doing this like rap like this and just like why what 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 what, what, no i i don't get it i think that there should i've in the past have edited particularly bad rap verses out of songs and i'm all fine with genres blending when done correctly in the quote unquote early days of this happening when it was like Ja Rule and J Lo and they were kinda say, like and they were kind the way of you talk, the way <laughs> you the yeah, way exactly <laughs> when, when, when done purposefully and there's plenty of other rap verses where the, the vibe matches Kelly better. And Nelly. Oh yeah, that's like that's a straight up duet, that song. Yeah. And or even like I don't know, song. like Rihanna, like hard or something. There's there's songs that work, but several of them don't. The most extreme example, and this is actually a it's just bad rapping, I think. Is this duet um, by Kimya Dawson? It was in oh, Moldy yeah. Peaches. Yeah, Moldy Peaches. She did this. She was with this rapper named Aesop Rock. Oh yeah. And they did, and I think they did a whole album or something together uh, as a band. And I love her parts of it so much, and his parts are so bad <laughs> that I edited it out and have a version <laughs> of this song that's just her verses. It's like two and a half minutes long, but it's great. 
It's called Delicate Cycle. It is by far the best song ever written about laundry. <laughs> and I'll play it for you here. There you go. All right. And that's, uh, we hope that you spin cycle your way. I mean, to, I think uh, that we've spoken long enough for you to be able to have done. If you, if you've started this at a laundromat, you're just about folding up your clothes now. Oh my gosh. And this song is about like the beauty of laundromats. Oh, beauty. So Love here it. we go. Bye guys. I was 26 years old the first time I lived in a house with a washer and dryer in it and that's the year I bottomed out maybe what was missing was the sense of community that comes from hauling your big old load out in public and airing your dirty laundry in the company of other people who also don't have the amenities at their convenience in a home that's so set up that they never have to leave i miss the smell the dust the coins the trust the squeaky carts the vibrations the bucket full of bleach the dryer sheets the old payphone the giant sink i'd watch my daddy mop the floor and my heart started with the quarter i'd watch my daddy mop the floor and my heart started with the quarter